it is a play that deals in empathy and I think it does it very, very well. Again, and welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Today we are talking about Rebecca Gilman's play, Boy Gets Girl. This play was originally produced at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, a theater Jack and I have both been to, even together a few times. Yeah. And uh, before it transferred over to then play off-Broadway, this was two, year 2000 at the Goodman Theater first came out, and then uh, 2001 it played off-Broadway at the Manhattan Theater Club. This is the first play in our group, I believe, that is not a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, it was nominated for the Best New Play in 2002 for the Oliver Award, but did not, I guess, end up winning that one. Um, but notably played off-Broadway and was premiered at the Goodman, which is obviously a very cool theater. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just kind of to real quick kind of sum up the content of the play, we do want to do a quick content warning, and I'll do it right away at the start before I start talking about things. Uh, this play deals with uh, a stalker and and gender issues, and there is some uh, dealing with rape both and uh, physical and mental abuse. So uh, if anyone does not want to uh, consume that kind of content. This is your warning right now, both in this podcast and in the play itself. But that being said, I just want to sum up the play. Uh, the The play uh, centers around the main character, pretty much, is Teresa Bedell. And uh, she, has, uh, she goes on a blind date with this individual called Tony. And uh, amongst other things, they have very little in common and they try to make it work and do this date a couple times. They even have a follow-up date and it doesn't go as well. And Teresa tells them to not uh, pursue her anymore to which Tony responds by essentially stalking her, leaving tons of messages, sending a lot of flowers and not <laughs> letting it drop. And much of the, much of the kind of central action of the play happens within the context of her workspace. So her, her, uh, coworkers, Howard, who is her boss, Howard Siegel and Mercer Stevens, uh, play large roles within this play. And the, uh, front desk manager, Harriet as well, plays a, a pretty crucial role. And the other two characters in this play, uh, you get kind of some, uh, other angles on the whole, uh, sexualized, Culture uh, by uh, she is uh, Teresa is asked by Howard to run an interview series with Les Kenkat, I think is what we decided his last name is called Kenkat, um, and that uh, he is a uh, a pornographic filmmaker. So uh, so you get her interview with that as kind of some context as well, and then Madeline Beck is the detective who comes in and winds up having to. Uh, winds up winds up being the investigator for this this stalker that is coming after Teresa Teresa. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that um, Rebecca Gilman did in building the play was introduce you to Tony right off the bat. Tony is the stalker. I mean, he's not her boyfriend. They never actually officially become boyfriend and girlfriend. They just start dating. Um, but Tony and Teresa. And so they go out on a date right away. That's the first scene. And then um, she goes, I think, to work after that. And then they have another date scene later. 
Um, and then there's there's only one more scene that has Tony in it, which is after the second date. Teresa tells Tony, "Hey, we are we're not compatible. I'm sorry. I'm too invested in my work. It's just really not going to work out. Let's not pursue this relationship any further." Which weirdly, Tony seems to take very very well in the moment. He does not seem to. Um, have a violent reaction at that point for any reason. He simply says, I'm sorry about that. Uh, we may dive into some of the nuances of that and discover places where he, he really is giving signs that he's going to be kind of a monster. But at that point, it does not seem to be true. Then, uh, in the next scene, or maybe one more scene after that, Tony shows up at her work as to come and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm sorry, can we grab lunch? And then she's much more firm and says, no, stop talking to me, you need to leave. And that showing up at her work is is sort of the start of the stalking. If it's your first time through the play, you may not at that point, assuming you don't know anything about the play, um, know that he's going to become a stalker. But there are some odd tones there that start to develop. But then after that, Tony is in no more scenes, at least on stage. Which was a very intentional choice to have us not experience Tony as a stalker. All we experience him as, as the audience, is a sort of love, drunk, dumb kid. I mean, I don't, there, he's not young, but in that sort of sense of being young and naive. So Tony does leave a few phone messages that we get uh, a little bit later in the play when he's kind of started to turn violent. We get a few of those phone messages of him sounding violent, sounding like a stalker. They're a little bit hard to listen to, especially the second one. But that's really all we get of the evil, violent, abusive stalker Tony. The other three scenes that he's in where he's actually physically on the stage, he's really, he seems to be just a person trying to woo her in a romantic way. There are maybe some signs in those dialogue bits of his where you would say, that's a little weird, or maybe that's a sign there, especially somebody who knows something about stalking and about abusive relationships, especially probably would be able to pick out signs even better than Jackson and I could. But I am wondering, Jackson, what do you think, how do you feel about not getting to experience the stalker version of Tony? Yeah, I think it's I think the the rest of the play he's I mean he's it's so interesting that you say that because right away I was like no he's totally in the rest of the play what are you talking about but he's he's actually not he's uh mentioned all the time by the other characters because they keep running into him cuz he's so prevalent throughout the story but he is never on stage and I think that is a really weird experience and and uh uh a foreign experience to a lot of people to have someone so prevalent in in your life and in within the story that you're watching thus and and never see them and and I think I think you're right on on point at the beginning too you you this play only works if you if you think Tony is just kind of sad at the beginning you need to you need to fall for that as well as the characters do because that progression that we then see as he descends into stalker mania and we see him less and less, but he does more and more within the story is, is a very, uh, it mirrors the character's journey, especially Teresa, but he starts affecting all the other characters lives too, by the end of the play. 
Yeah, absolutely. He does. It, it, he really becomes the central character of all of their discussions, save one character. The only character that doesn't really his storyline doesn't really have much to do with Tony's is the is the porn filmer, um, Leskin Cat. He yep. he has these sort of interview scenes with Teresa where they don't really talk about Tony. There is sort of one joke made at the end where it becomes clear that she's told him what has happened, but that's all happened in offstage scenes. But other than those scenes, really every other scene is in some way about this situation where she is being stalked. Um, really, she's had terrible, terrible things said to her, left in uh, letters, left in voicemails, um, uh, written on her walls of her apartment, you learn later on in her books. I mean, just horrible, gross stuff, the kind of stuff you, you only really read about on the news, or maybe you're out there and you've experienced somebody saying these kinds of gross things to you, and you have a different perspective on that as well. But the what what becomes so pervasive for them is the debate that the characters have, especially in the first half of the play, about whether this is whether the end of the play is actually going to happen. If that makes any sense, Teresa hmm, is or yeah. Teresa is is fairly concerned almost right away after the second or third time she sees him that he's following her, that he's he does not leave her alone, calls her constantly. She knows pretty quickly that he's uh, watching her apartment because he's able to call her right when she comes in, and she expresses these concerns to the other characters, but their response is not immediately concern, which is, which is, you know, you feel bad for her. You're on her side. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's, uh, that's one of the things that you notice right away is as she's getting, I mean, certainly if you've ever been around a manipulative person before, you're going to see the flags right away with him. Uh, he's, he's, he's kind of a wounded puppy dog. He sets situations up for like, I, you know, he brings up his his uh, own personal baggage right away and uh, kind of makes her feel bad about it for him. But then he likes it. The, the first time that we really see uh, the way the cultural norms are affecting this thing is he sends flowers to the office the day after. And right away, someone says, oh, well, you should be flattered. And that that line pervades through throughout the first uh, first, let's say a third of the script, that attitude is very prevalent within Howard's character, Mercer's character, and Harriet's character. Harriet for much longer. Um, and you you see, even though Teresa already pretty much knows, like she she arguably, and we can talk about this a little bit maybe, arguably she knows by the end of that first beer that, she, that this is not going to work out. She still goes on the date, the, the secondary date, uh, but she she's already starting to kind of put up put up the the barrier to the relationship and and people are already like not hearing her and saying you should you should be flattered by this he's clearly pursuing you you should be okay with this level of uh pursuit and one one of the characters i think it's a little after that winds up saying something along the lines of like you know normal wooing or normal behavior for men is somewhat psychotic in nature <laughs> this <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. That 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 you know this level of obsession that just happens after one date certainly is extreme in this case, but is indicative of other methods of of pursuit in whatever this this game of dating is. 
Right, yeah. The title of the play comes from a small monologue that Mercer has. Mercer is her co-worker. I, I think... Uh, gosh, I'd have to look at the beginning of the play, but I think he's supposed to be a similar age to her. She, he's new to the to the magazine that she writes for. Howard is her boss. He's the other kind of male in their co-worker. But Mercer is the one that is more of her age. He's um, uh, married. He works alongside her rather than being her boss. And he and Howard have a conversation about a, uh, an article that Mercer wants to write about sort of this situation and the culture, sort of the sociology behind um, stalking and what's considered normal in courtship and, and things like that. And he describes a scene from sort of, you know, the every movie, um, which is that, uh, you know, the boy meets a girl, immediately falls in love with her. Um, without knowing anything about her, which is the situation that Tony is in, he, you know, quote unquote, falls in love with her. Really, we know he just falls into obsession. It's not really love, <laughs> but he says it is. So, yeah. he, you know, yep. the, Mercer's describing the boy. He falls in love with the girl right away. They may have nothing in common. They may not know each other very well, but he falls in love with her. But maybe she's already married. So he sort of stalks her. He follows her, tries to break her up with her husband, sends her letters and flowers all the time. And in the movie, it's romantic. And at the end of the movie, the girl breaks it off with her husband or soon-to-be husband or whatever and kisses him and the boy gets the girl. And that's where you get boy gets girl. And he says, well, that behavior is really sort of what's going on here. But in real life, you realize this is insane. Yeah. This is scary. And part of what Mercer wonders is, you know, how do we contribute to that as men? He's talking with Howard, remember? So, you know, how do, how do Howard and I, is the question Mercer asks, contribute to that culture? Have we ever scared women with our behavior? He talks about a time in college when he got dumped and he was just so sad and brokenhearted that he would occasionally kind of go out of his way to walk outside of his ex-girlfriend's dorm and just see if her light was on as sort of a comfort, which is the so same similar behavior to what yeah. her stalker <laughs> is doing and kind of creepy but but you could see how it could also be spun romantically and empathetically mm-hmm. um and it that that culture's part of the reason why people don't want to believe Teresa right away they believe she's part of a love story but it's a love story from this male perspective of <laughs> yeah. I have to do whatever I can to capture and get you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene is so uh, is so interesting to me. I it's it's I read this play in college for the first time, and it it, it was the it, when when I said to do this one again, it is still the one that stuck in my mind because you have this really kind of ironic and paradoxical conversation going on between these two men who are who are. Uh, kind of dealing dealing with the uh, the ramifications of seeing someone really uh, hurt by 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 actions and they see themselves in those very actions and things that they've done in those very actions but even within the context of that conversation it devolves into similarly hurtful language that when these two guys are alone by themselves they're talking about, uh, Howard winds up teasing him about what size breasts that Mercer likes. And Mercer, in that scene at least, tries to to shift the conversation away from that. But even within the context of this moment of, you know, waking up to something that is really kind of, that, that is very hurtful, that a, 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 a practice that is not uh, beneficial <laughs> and is not caring and is, is straight up abusive... Even as they're waking up to this, they are still 
not necessarily leading by example within that conversation. Right. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that Jackson and I are two white men. Yes. We're both married. We both got married in college. So there's a lot of this play that remains sort of out of our realm of expertise. We didn't get married in college. We both got married when we graduated. Yeah. yeah. You know, right out of college. Um, And so... We just some of the play just we don't have access to what's going on, and mm. and that makes it possible, for better or for worse, that the characters whose journey, whose change we follow, we're gonna maybe more align with Mercer and Howard, for better or for worse, because what Mercer and Howard have to learn through the play about the you know the jokingly how psychotic men's dating actions can seem, and how fearful and dangerous that can seem if you're on the receiving end is sort of it's sort of the lesson for people like Jackson and I yeah um but the true journey of the play is of Teresa and her not being believed right away but then suffering her whole life falling apart because a man decided that she was not a person, that she was uh, a body only. And that that even comes up a couple times in the play. Um, she has a really great monologue. And if if any of you young women out there are looking for a monologue for whatever, um, this is a, a good one to pull, I think, from this play. She talks about how... <sighs> Tony has made her feel as a stalker. And somebody says, well, he's made you feel scared, fearful, right? And she says, well, yes, but that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is he makes me feel like I'm reduced. She talks about when she would used to go jogging. She can't anymore. She loved to go jogging, but she can't anymore because there's a stalker who might capture her and rape her and kill her. So she doesn't go jogging. But when she used to go jogging, Every once in a while, she would get catcalled, and men would say disgusting things to her on the streets of New York City. And she'd say, "You know, every every couple of times, I would feel like I was reduced, like I wasn't a person. All the things that I care about, that I love, that are part of my life and my personality and my relationships are gone. And all that's left is the fact that I happen to have breasts, or happen to have, you know, a, a nice butt, or whatever." And the play is in some ways, a tension between those two worlds, between the, the world of men trying to say, we're, we're just trying to have authentic relationships with people. And part of the way we do that is by seeing women or whoever as physically attractive. And then this other view within the play, which is Teresa and, and, and that view, which is when, when all you do is see us as physically attractive and all you see is our physical bodies, you strip away all the things that make us who we are. Yeah, and and it really it sits in the middle of that tension for for so much of the play because because of the removal of Tony from the play, we are able to focus on that issue because we're we're not actually dealing with physical tension scenes where Tony is you know uh, present and being a, a physical force. You're stuck in this kind of issue for for most of the play, or stuck is the wrong word. We are grappling with this issue throughout the play. You see both sides of it, and and part of the reason I like this play so much is uh, is is 
is the way Rebecca Gilman wrote these two sides of it. She she spends time in both of them very equally so that when the point gets made, you you realize where you were and where you are now. You you progress throughout the argument with different characters at different moments and and it, the journey that you go on within the context of this issue is is huge. The is I mean you you watch you watch everything her apartment gets raided by this guy. She's not there. She has since like moved uh, moved in temporarily with her boss who is allowing her to stay at his house and while she's gone Tony comes in and goes through all of her stuff and write, writes in the margins of her books and it's it Yeah, yeah, he he doesn't just like pull invasive. everything out and you know just just destroyed the place. He destroys the place in a way that takes a long time. That represents a lot of maliciousness. He writes in the margins of all of her books. He mm-hmm. goes through and rips things up. He pours things, you know, in, in a way that represents that he's probably been there for an hour or two hours. And that yeah. that that for me is one of the one of the grossest feeling scenes. She, they've, she's finally come back to her apartment after having been gone for a while to discover that it's been destroyed. And she's going through her stuff and she's packing the stuff that she needs to move on. She's decided that she needs to leave and run away. Mm-hmm. And, um, she, as she's packing, she packs up all of her books. And finally, Mercer says, Oh, no, you don't want this book. She says, why? And, you know, you don't want it. She says, why? And he says, okay, fine. He wrote in the margins, wrote just terrible, disgusting things. And she looks at it and she says, oh no. And she realizes, and she goes through the rest of her books and realizes that he's been writing in all of them. And she says something like, how long was he in here to do all this? And she just kind of physically collapses. And that makes me feel gross. That's a feeling that I can empathize. It was the feeling that somebody's been in your house, unwanted, mm-hmm. unknown, for a long time. I mean, it's ugh, it just makes my skin and my fingernails just ugh. Yeah, yeah. That that whole that whole scene and it culminates in in the scene where she finally accepts that she has to kind of change her name and 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 she, she she there's this there's this scene between her and Howard and Mercer where they they kind of she entered they she winds up introducing herself in her new name and they encourage her to do so and it's this heartbreaking scene. And so much and, of this and it's play. The, it's the heartbreaking scene and it's the end of the play. It's the end of the play. It's what you're she, left he, with. He wins. You know, he doesn't get caught. He terrorizes her enough that she's forced to change her name and move away. Yep. And that's how the play ends. And there's a line about that. She straight up says he's already won. Like he's... He, he he's not able to do any of the things that he said he was going to do, but he has made me, he has altered my life completely. So he has one, which is just a, a hard space to sit in after that play. You have to like go on a walk or something. I went to the gym, yeah, which it, was, which was not like a beneficial thing because most of this activity, <laughs> a good chunk of this sort of interaction happens at the gym, but I needed to do something physical. Cause I was like at the end of it, I have so, you, there's so much emotion pounding through you. You need to do something. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not an inspiring play or you know, it's not an uplifting play. It's not a happy play. It's it's sort of it's more like a teachable play. And and 
I think when I say that, I, I maybe I mean something other than what I really mean. Um, it, it it's so human and so it's such a focused story, a believable story in a terrifying way, a real story, and then from the story that ends so poorly, you you take away some new insight, um, and 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 especially as men. I think Jackson and I take away some new insight um, about how how our actions impact other people, um, especially women. And you know, we I, I think I think it's important to note that we do not obviously condone or empathize, empathize with Tony. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe <laughs> nope. a little, maybe a little bit at the beginning in just sort of a romantic trying to date way, but it, it's not like we go, oh, he's stalking and I used to stalk people. I get it. It's, it's more like you real, you see something so extreme and you say, oh, I see how my actions as a, as a man have some have some relationship with this extreme example. Yes, that is and and the other the, the other best not the best but the other part of it is so you have Tony and you see someone who is someone who and again we are two white males interact heterosexual males interact interacting with this. So this is just our perspective but you see the the way something that you would you can say to yourself I would never do that. I would never break into someone's apartment and you know right yeah no I would you can it, easily say I would never do that. But then you have Mercer who's in there too who is going through this evolution of saying like he looks back at his college days and he says wait I did that. <laughs> like I'm like the physical action, maybe not the the antecedent or the the consequence of those actions, or, but he, or not as extreme, right? He didn't like. Right. He, he, at least he didn't tell us that he stood outside of a girl's apartment and watched it all night and tried to call her as soon as she came, tried to figure out if she was sleeping with somebody or whatever. Right. That that's maybe the more extreme, but in the this individual sort of, action, right? Is, yes, the indi- like the the. The the evolving action is something that we all say, oh, no, I'd never do that. But individual actions within it, I mean, you, it forces – it forces – it forced me to look at the things that I do and realize, especially, you know, kind of <laughs> young Jackson trying to figure out what dating was and critique it and realize, wow – you know, I'm especially, I have to be very vigilant with this stuff because it is this meta narrative that is fed through a lot of things. And we should actually write, this is, this is a great moment to try, try to come back and talk a little bit about, uh, less, less can cat because he is yeah. part of, he is, he is part of the, he, he kind of represents in this, in this piece, you expect him to represent the problem. Right, he's a pornographic filmmaker who is glorifying a women's form over personhood, and you expect him to be this character that uh, gets battered and and kind of bears the brunt of the moral uh, beating for this this play in the absence of Tony being there for you to beat on. And I don't know. Do you think? How do you think he comes out in this play? He's 
he's he's he's a very kind of complex has a very complex relationship with Teresa. But how do you think he comes out on the moral spectrum in this play? Very gray, very very gray. Let's let's chat just for a minute about his role in the play before we delve into the you know some of the some of the thematic roles that he plays so um teresa works for a magazine she's a journalist for an acclaimed magazine not like a rag um but uh it's called the world apparently in this yeah i i guess i couldn't tell you off the top of my head whether it's a real magazine or not i, I think it's made yeah. up but i think I so don't too no <laughs> yeah Let's, but it's like a hundred uh, years old established yeah it's like it's like the new yorker it's like you know if, if i'm offending anybody from the world because it's a real magazine and I'm pretending that it's fake. I apologize. I absolutely have no idea. I'm going to assume it's fake and you'll have to just accept my apology if it's real. Somebody tell us in the comments if it's yeah, real. Yeah. Um, so let's assume it's fake. So she works for this magazine that's made up for the play. It's a well-established, very reputable magazine. She's a great journalist, pretty renowned journalist um, for the magazine. She is asked to do an article um, that she does not want to do, where she profiles this director of 60s exploitation movies, um, Les Cat. And so she has two interview scenes with him. The first one is sort of right when Tony is starting to get annoying, not maybe stalker, but just annoying. And then the second one after that is after he's really become a stalker. Um, and she is now scared, really more angry at this point than scared. Um, and then he has a third scene later on where she goes to visit him in the hospital after he's had to have his colon removed. And that that alone, that progression should tell you a little bit about his sort of journey in the play because Teresa, being a strong feminist who is engaging in this terrible plot with this stalker man probably does not like Les Cat. You'd be right in that conclusion. But by the end of the play, she's going to visit him in the hospital. So that is a weird trajectory, which speaks a little bit to what he goes through. She, right away in her first interview, tries to pin him and maybe still to this to this point would believe that he is objectifying women with his movies, that he is, uh, turns them into just body parts. He talks a lot about how he loves large breasts and how filming breasts in the right light and with the right story is so glorious. And his argument is that actually what he's doing is glorifying women. He is painting them as beautifully as he can. It's like a love letter to women to film their breasts, to film these pornographic sex scenes. Um, and she says, no, what you're doing is you're objectifying women, you're turning them into just their body parts, and, and they kind of go back and forth. And to Jackson's question, at the end of the play, you're not really sure what to make of him. He does not come off to be the pornographic jerk that you'd think, even though, weirdly, it's not like he, um, it's not like he turns away from his dark ways. You know, it'd be one thing if he ended up admitting in the end, oh, well, I'm poor and I only do this because I have to, or somebody put a gun to my head and maybe made pornographic films, I actually don't care, or whatever. The, the truth is that he's proud of what he does. He loves breasts. He loves to have sex with lots of women. He loves to have sex with the women he's casting in a very, um, you know, in a power, power situation there. But 
despite all that, <laughs> he seems to be kind of like a nice guy who seems to genuinely care about her. Like, it's very confusing. Yeah. You have this scene at the end where she, she tells one of the characters that she told uh, less about, about this, this stalker finally. And he, she, she kind of laughs and says he subtly, uh, <laughs> subtly intimated that he has connections to the mafia. And if he wants anyone, if you want anyone to break his knees for you to let him know, and so at the end of the at the end of the play, she at least has she is at least uh, having kind of a friendly relationship with this individual who at the start of the play, she becomes very antagonistic toward. Yeah, and, actually, when she decides that she needs to move, he tells her that he's going to he gets her a private jet. Yep. To leave fl- like yeah, a friend. Yeah. Mm hmm. And you, you and you see him. It's, it's not like either of them really change the other either they they perhaps perhaps he is changed by teresa but but he certainly he doesn't he doesn't cede his ground kind of the last scene we see him with he's saying oh thank you so much for the write-up which she made she intended to sound kind of derogatory towards him and critical but yeah she writes this kind of lewd article about him in the official write-up it's like it, every line is about how much he loves breasts. It's a lot of breast puns yep. and and stuff like that, which he loves, even though he she kind of meant it. it as an insult. Yeah, he, ta- he she comes in, he's like, thank you so much for that write-up. It was so honest, and now I have all these publishers, like all these <laughs> agents coming, and they want to film my new, or they want to take on my new film, and, and so it kind of backfires on him that way. But so so he doesn't really, he doesn't cede his ground. He is not changing his life for the for the more you know less pornographic film lifestyle or anything he's continuing on that way and she and she is not she has not wavered either she doesn't like come around to his side of the argument but these two characters who started um and and tiffany or antithesis of each other wind up seeing each other in at least a kind of friendly light at the end of the play so let, let's talk about the difference between him and Tony. This is something that has occurred to me that I'm maybe interested in. Just just cursory, they both have three scenes with Teresa. Um, in the first scene with Tony, she's on her first date. The first scene with Les, he is um, uh, the first interview. Then there's a second date and a second interview. And then a scene set in a totally different context at the hospital with Les and at her workplace where Tony comes to try to ask her to lunch. So there's some structural similarities there. Um, Les at the beginning, the porn director seems like the kind of person Teresa is going to hate. He's going to paint as the absolute example of everything wrong with men, everything wrong with the media, everything wrong with our culture, objectifying, fetishizing women. At the end of the play, she... It's hard to know what exactly she would say about Les. Whether I mean, I still think she kind of has a sense that he's kind of a jerk, but yeah. they're at least on friendly terms, at least enough that they talked one more time because she told him that she's got a stalker. Yep. Um, at the end of the play, for Tony, he really has come to symbolize the things that are wrong with the violence against women and the kind of fear that power can have one person over another. Whereas at the beginning of the play, he started seeming like 
somebody that Teresa might like. And I, I think earlier in the, our conversation, Jackson said that after the first date, um, he wasn't quite sure. Or I think you said maybe the, the, you don't know that the first date went well. I actually kind of think that the at the end of the first date, she kind of likes him. I think it's the flowers that he sends right away um, that maybe sets her off a little bit. But regardless, Tony starts in a much better place than Les starts. And Tony ends yeah. in a dark, dark, terrible, evil place of his own making. And Les ends painted as this kind of anti, maybe anti-hero? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. So that's sort of an interesting dual path to me. No, of those two characters, they do not end where you would expect. Mm-hmm. They end opposite. Yeah, definitely. And they kind, of, they kind of cross in the middle almost within that symmetry. That is that is interesting. And that's something that you shouldn't ignore either. A, a playwright of Gilman's caliber, you know, that, that kind of symmetry, we should look into it. And I think you're right. It's, you see the journey of these two characters as they cross into Teresa's life. And it, and I think, I think there is something to do with, with the way, so the issue that we're kind of, we're kind of looking at here is, because they also, in the first scene where I'm going with this is they, the first scene with, uh, uh, Les, gosh, I I cannot remember his name. The first scene with. Cat? Les can cat. Yeah, Les can, can cat. Not, we, we think I we're think, pronouncing that right. We but think we so. Very well the wrong. problem is, is it's so close to Wes, as in Wes Anderson, that I'm like, it's totally Wes. And it's like, no, it's not Wes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the first scene, <laughs> the first scene with Les, he kind of makes what it could be perceived as a pass at her, right? He like says, let's stop the interview. He gets frustrated and then says, you want to have a drink and watch the, the World Series game? And he says it more than once. And she says no more than once. And she goes away. And then the second scene, you see him, he says something like, I got terribly drunk that night. I couldn't believe you turned me down in a very Hugh Hefner-ish way. Um, but he, the, there's, there's a line that Mercer says later on, and, it's, and it's, Howard prompts him to it. He says, where, where is this in your, in, your, in your story of this? And he says, what story? And he says, the boy gets girl story. And he looks around this shattered apartment, and it's... It's boy, boy hurts girl. I think is what what the line is. Yes, yes, yes. And you see, you. I mean, so within these two characters, around the same time, they have the decision to do one or the other thing, and one of them, and Tony, clearly, goes down the road of of hurt and pain. Uh, and I think what we see in Les is he does not do that. Right. He comes from a place that is repugnant and arrives at a place that is sympathetic, uh, maybe even kind on his behalf. Tony starts in a place that is very empathetic. Um, Their first date, it's pretty clear that he's earnestly trying to impress her and seems nervous. Again, I think... Uh, you know, if you're an actor or if you're a psychologist, you'll find some things in there that indicate where Tony's headed. But yeah. but as the large sweep of the scene, he seems like he's really trying. So he starts in a place that is more sympathetic and ends in a place that is more repugnant. And there's something that, I mean, you know, Rebecca Gilman created in Lesk and Cat the most disgusting place probably that she could have a character that Teresa would really feasibly have to interact with. 
You know, if she had, if she would have been forced to go to a jail and interview a convicted rapist, that maybe would be too much for the play. So I think Rebecca put put it right on the dot. The most disgusting person that she could have to meet in the context of this play that still feels 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 sort of you know within the scope of what could really happen, and it's a sexploitation pornography director. I mean, yep, yep. <laughs> but that person does not end up being the repulsive one. Yeah. And there's some there's a commentary there mm-hmm. about about it's a it's something about the way that men choose to think about women. And it's not very clear because Les does not seem to have, at least at the beginning, a very fair a humanizing view of women. He makes these porn films and he seems to say that, you know, what women want is to show off. What they want is to have men stare at their bodies. Women love being in these porn films. But then when she visits him in the hospital room and really in the other interviews too, you can see him treat her very compassionately and with a very human view of her, which he does not seem to carry across to his actresses. I don't know. I'm talking myself into circles here. I know. I'm trying to capture this odd character. You know, when you talk about, when you read the play, it's very clear. When you try to talk about it afterwards, it's not as clear why he's such a sympathetic character. Right. The I, the I, words like, surrounding him are not <laughs> are they, they don't help. <laughs> I can't really articulate why you actually end up caring about him at the end of the play. You just sort of do. <laughs> at least mm-hmm. I do. And, and maybe it, maybe it, you don't as a listener. <laughs> yeah, it's it's certainly it's certainly written well in that way, but I think a lot of it has to do with the actor portraying it too because eventually you have to see a switch of this old man who is alone and still he has he has quite a few lines about about the woman he was married to, who he cheated on multiple oh, times. Oh, that's and another. Didn't to I didn't her. even. I, I didn't even think about that, Jack. But that's another similarity between him and Tony. They both are dealing with abandonment. Um, less more yeah. so because he yep. he recognizes that he did something wrong, which is that he cheated on his wife. Um, and Tony gets. Uh, he like got dumped by a girl back in Michigan. Is that right? Yeah. By, by his yep. fiance. Right. They were going to get married. Mm-hmm. And he gets dumped. So man, he doesn't really admit any fault in that, to my recollection. So there's another place where, you know, the young guy trying to woo her ends up doing this, the sort of the wrong thing, which is to not admit his own fault, his relationship. Whereas Les, um, he, he fully he admits and several times says that it's his greatest regret that he cheated on his wife and caused her to leave him. Yeah. And I think I th- I think that's why this play had has and had after college such a lasting effect on me is because you have these characters who are who are you have you have two polar opposite characters. Ter- Teresa is clearly being hurt. You're on her side. Tony is clearly hurting. You are against him. But then between those two characters, there are these ambiguous characters who are messy. They're messing up all the time. Like we've we've said a lot of good things about Howard and Mercer, but they have a couple scenes that are just as reprehensible. Honestly, just right, some of the right things. away. They both are very much 
on Tony's side. Yeah. He's just, uh, he's just, he just likes you. He doesn't know how to express that he likes you. He's sending you flowers. You should get that, you know, blah, 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 blah. So that right away, they are doing, you know, it, we, we live in this me too movement culture right now yep. where we have a very heightened awareness. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you do now yeah. about uh, the way that men, uh, talk with women. Um, the, the tendency of men to interrupt women, the tendency of men not to listen to women. And gosh, this play could this play could be written right now. Absolutely. Would you agree with that, Jackson? There, there's this, one. There's the only thing in it is she complains about her cell phone and it's like a flip phone or something like that. But that is the only dated piece about this play. Other than that, it really shockingly feels like a play of this time. Yes. Because of our because of what has happened in the past year, two years, uh, in the culture surrounding sex and gender and power, this play is maybe the play of that Me Too movement. And so you see this beautiful example in about the first five scenes, six scenes of the play of two men refusing dead out to believe a woman when she says, this this guy is scaring me. He's dangerous, and as you know, he's not. He just lies. He blah 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 blah. Yep. And you see everyone. You see, it takes so long for any sort of something resembling a support group to come around her. Even even with within her female coworkers, Harriet, her secretary, doesn't really believe her at first. Harriet is the reason Tony gets into the room. Uh, in the in the final scene that Tony's there, Harriet lets him in and says, oh, this this person, he said that he, he tried to call or something like that and couldn't get you. So here he is and drops him off at the office. Um, I think we're going to, we, we didn't talk about this, but I think we might leave Harriet as kind of the, the, the secret for you to read in the play. There's, there's some, some more to do with her unless you really want to talk about her, Jacob. No, let's, let's, let's leave Harriet as the mystery. She has a pretty, she's not, she doesn't have that many scenes, but she's a pretty central piece of the plot yep. as it unfolds. So we'll leave that. I would like to talk about the other woman in the play. Yes, I was, yeah, um, definitely. Teresa, the victim, uh, Harriet, the secretary, there's one more woman and it is detective Madeline Beck. She's a police officer who help is, you know, is this officer assigned to this case of stalking. It is such a clear, interesting choice for that to be the other woman character in the play because she is the only real true authority figure in the play. The real power structures of the world, the police, the law, the government, are really represented through her. You get Les Kincaid, who's maybe the dark side of the media. Howard and Mercer and Teresa all work for the maybe the news side of the media. So you get that power structure in society. Um, and then you get this sort of government authority executive figure in Madeline Beck, who... I mean, by the point that she comes into the play, it's very clear that Tony's stalking her. So there's no real world for her to um, to disbelieve Teresa in the way. She just comes in a little later in the play, but and by that point, it's pretty clear he's left some violent messages, et cetera. So she doesn't just she doesn't have the opportunity to react in the same way as the other characters. But given that, she is immediately knows what to do has been in the situation before, handles it with clear, calm confidence in a way that the men in the play simply cannot do. Yep. And I think I think there's another extra facet in there too, because when she comes in, she the law can't do much yet. 
but she comes in and still believes her. She says, and and she le- reads off this laundry list of things that she should start doing, and they are major life change things. And she still can't. She still doesn't have a restraining order. She's still not sure she can get one, but she's already saying she she's such an I mean this character who kind of floats in and out of the scenes she is a whole play could be written about her because she has clearly done this many times before and she has the protocol down and the protocol is is life altering <laughs> like and and it's and it's all life altering changes on the part of the victim must occur and this guy doesn't even have a restraining order on him yet like a play about Beck would be great because that that tension of living in that injustice would be a really compelling play. But yes, she comes in. Right, her her world is working with victims. Um, I forget she does tell you in the play exactly what like her job is, what kind of a detective she is, and, and I forget it. But her job revolves around dealing with these kinds of cases. And so she has presumably worked with many many women who are the victim of physical abuse, rape, violence, stalking before. She has a script for it. She deals with it so capably um, and so empathetically too. Yeah. She is she is the picture of how to handle the situation. And yet what and I think this is what Jackson is saying, what she's asking Teresa to do is to upend her life. I mean, right away, her first scene, like Jackson was saying, she says, you need to uh, move to an apartment with a doorman and a lock, um, on an exterior lock. You need to immediately change your name. Uh, ditch your phone, get an unlisted number. Uh, what else? What else does she ask her to do? Uh, There's a couple other start things. Writing, yeah, start writing under another name. Um, be sure that you have, you go to the gym at different times a day, switch up oh, your yeah. routine, walk Change different routine. routes. Yeah. I mean, those right away, you know, this isn't down the line when he's, you know, become a, when he's really done something, um, physically violent to her or, or whatever, or they haven't been able to catch him or he has this government working against him. This is, she says, you know, I'm the detective says, you know, I've seen, this happened before. He's escalating really quickly. I clearly think you're in danger, so we need to take these steps. And it's... I mean, it's almost like right away he wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right and, away there's there's nothing set up to deal with this. Nothing that... Nothing to address the situation immediately when it happens. And so, uh, as far as law is concerned, and... So right away, it's on Teresa to try to change things rather than and, someone coming after Tony. And she's asked, and the detective is telling Teresa, well, you also need to keep a journal every time he calls you, yeah. every message you get, all the stuff you have to keep, all this stuff. So there's this, there's this sort of secondary level of commentary in the play about um, the way that victims are asked to be the ones... You know, in this situation, Teresa is the one who has to resolve it. Unless they can catch, you know, in a couple, I think later in a scene, Detective Beck says, unless he attacks you, 
there's not a lot we can do. Yeah. We can get a temporary restraining order, but it's really hard to enforce that. Um, and that that's a, a sad part of the play. That, that It's a sad sy- part of life. <laughs> right, that the system is set up that the victim is going, and inevitably has to lose. Yeah, just alone, The I'm so glad you brought up the journal part too, because that alone, not only do you have to listen to this person leaving you horrible, abusive messages, you then got to write it down and it's got to live in your own personal things. You got to think about it so that you know that you have it documented so that when the time comes that you can finally catch this horrible person, you have all the evidence there and that's all on you. Right. Yeah. And you know, Jackson and I aren't lawyers and we don't work in law enforcement. So we're, I don't know that we're (laughs) offering a critique. (laughs) We're we're not really offering a critique of the law enforcement in the way that they handle abuse victims or, or anything like that. Um, but what the, and I don't think the play really is either. The play isn't really a critique of that system. It's just sort of a commentary on how sad that system is, or, or maybe how, easily how easy it is for tony to ruin her whole life maybe that's the better way of saying yeah how simple it is for tony to upend everything in her life yep and how it pervades through and you see the dominoes fall and it's all you know you 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 think back over the moments and if it it, there there's very few ways it could have not happened she did all of the things that she was clear and 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 that comes up too beck beck has these lines that are like are you were you very clear and authoritative on it and she brings up she kind of draws out of her that well i was maybe a little vague to start with but nevertheless Teresa is very clear when he comes to the office she's cutting it off she doesn't think there's anything in common with them she doesn't even give the excuse of work right now at that point she says i'm done we're done and he still comes after her so you get into the semantics of like, well, she maybe should have done that a little bit earlier. And I don't think that's important in this instance (laughs) because it was. Right. And it it doesn't really even seem that important to Beck, the detective. She says, well, you know, it's really, she sort of shrugs and says, you know, just so you know, for next time, there's nothing that you can do about it now. Now he's fixated. Now he's coming after you. Now your whole life is ruined. Yeah. I mean. And she has lines like that that she she has a lot of lines and they're kind of kind of uh delivered in a way that that seems like by the end you start to believe her that she's actually emotionally invested in the lines but the lines that are saying it's not your fault it's never anyone's fault like it, it's not any of your victim any of the victims fault of this or any of the survivors fault of this that that this happened and by the end of it that that certainly that she says that more than once. It's kind of one of her mantras that she consistently says to Teresa as she's going through how she could have done anything different. And she says, it's not on you. Yeah. And it's the play is not a, a traditional um, dramatic. Um, it doesn't have the traditional maybe definition of drama, which is a, a protagonist a flawed protagonist does things to set off or, or is set off in some way and then struggles to try to change things. You know, she's maybe not pass passive might be the wrong word, but she is so very clearly not at fault in this play. This is not a mistake of her making. 
And it's not a mistake of her making later on. It's not like she makes it worse later, and it's not really about her struggling to fix it. There's not... It, it's very clear as soon as the detective gets involved, I think, it becomes very clear that there is no fixing the situation. I mean, in a very weird, rare possibility, they could catch him and arrest him before he attacked her. But that would only be if they got a restraining order, which means that she's already taken a bunch of documentation and the restraining order had been delivered to him, which means they would have had to find him before he attacked her. So other than a very far off chance where they managed to catch him doing something illegal before he attacks her, the outcomes are her life has to dramatically change or he attacks her. And those are the really the painted as the two options very early in the play. So this is not a play about Teresa trying to fix it. This is a play about a nightmare situation and the audience sort of being forced to live the nightmare for a beat and get involved with some of the discussions about these situations, how to prevent them, how we are all contributing to them. Yeah, and I think that's... That's one of the really good artful parts of this play is it you um it's presented in a way there there will be people who read this play and have a visceral reaction and don't like it or whatever but I think that it is presented in a way that is approachable to many many people you you can find different parts of it that you are in if you're introspective enough you can see actions that you've done that that are represented in this play and it allows you to come out of it having experienced something maybe i mean this this is this is an extreme but it is an extreme that is experienced by people and you can come out of it having seen an experience that you have never felt and gain some it is it is a play that deals in empathy and i think it does it very very well yeah it it is an enlightening play about what it is like to be violently stalked because stalker is kind of a cultural joke. It is, um, it's more of a, it's, it's more of a trope in society that, oh, I'm, I'm going to stalk you. Were you stalking me, man? You followed yeah, me. Yeah, stalked him on and Facebook. Even people you know that have been stalked, I know someone that was stalked, even people you know, I don't have a sense of how frightening it is. And the play is very frightening. I I wouldn't, I mean, I probably would not want to read the play if I were alone in my house and it were late at night. It's not frightening like a <laughs> yeah. horror movie of monsters. It's frightening like this could happen to me. Yeah. And statistically, I, and statistically I have the safety of knowing that I am very likely not to be stalked in my life. I happen to be a straight white male. And yeah. I'm in the category of people that don't get stalked for the most part. So if you are not in that category and you have experienced someone having total power over your life for no reason at all. I mean, it it's become so clear. We've talked about this, that Tony has the power to ruin her life with no, almost no effort on his part. He has such power over her. If you've had that experience, you're going to, I think, probably see some of yourself in this play. And the play might, hor- I mean, it, it might be traumatic for you to experience. It's its sort of traumatic for me to experience. Yeah. And I'm not probably ever going to be in that position. 
Yeah, absolutely. You leave it. You leave it <laughs> afraid. Um, like just honestly, the the I mean, and it, because it is so real world, and you st- I mean, you start thinking, you can start going. <laughs> it opens up pathways in your mind that um, that that you need a good adrenaline, you know, use to get rid of. Um, and I, I, I absolutely agree. I think it is, it is a very visceral, a very, uh, empathic play. And I think it does a lot to expose you to that experience and certain, certainly to someone who has never felt it before, but then again, to people who have. So be careful reading it. Don't read it alone, but read and it. And let, let's just chat for a minute here as our time winds down about, you know, we've talked about the sort of the negative um, e- emotional experience of the play. Um, let's talk about, let's just sort of bring the conversation back around to the kinds of why, why the play is important. Let's maybe, let's maybe end on that note. Yeah. So the play is tough to experience. It's very real. It's frightening at times. It's it's frankly a little vulgar in places, not mm-hmm. obscenely so, but some of the characters, you know, I mean, one of the characters is a porn director, so yeah. it has some of that in it. Um, so you're probably not going to see this at your local small town community theater. <laughs> yeah, um, really, no. <laughs> but if you can, but if you, if it's some, but if a professional theater or a, uh, you know, a, maybe if you're in a city, you're more likely to see this kind of a play. If you can see it, I think it's worthwhile to experience and important. But why is it? Why is that so? Yeah, I think as painful as it is, I so, so certainly for for someone who has not had the experience this 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 makes you feel it. I this is going to be messy and I apologize for that, but it makes me feel the experience of of someone else very really. And I think I think it's important for us to deal with that for, 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 for it's important for, I'm going to use personal. It's important for me to experience that so that I don't just have this, uh, sympathetic experience, like sympathize with it. You, you, you're, I, I am so removed from that, but I, 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 I am challenged by this play to engage more deeply and personally in this moment and to look introspectively at my actions and the actions of others around me to lead by example f- coming out of this this play and this experience because you see people trying to grapple with it failing succeeding you see support groups coming around and falling down and it is it is you see you see a lot of variation on that spectrum and it guides you into a complicated internal space where you have to grapple with what you would do if you were in that situation and I think that's that for me was what I I drew out of it, and I hope that 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 if you ever see this play, that that is that is a similar experience. Yeah, I I agree with everything you just said. I think for me, the play is especially important to cause me to be more cautious, to be more aware of the way that my actions can affect those around me. I am not going to be Tony in my life. I I don't really have it in me to stalk somebody, to violently attack somebody, I don't think. Um, But there may be situations where I, through my actions, have scared someone or have contributed to a culture where people like that 
are allowed or are can you know aren't challenged by their peers you know one of the things that you wonder is if Howard and Mercer and the secretary Harriet had sort of believed her right away that that Tony was dangerous and and following her and not right and when he had showed up at work if they had thrown him out and pushed him around and said hey stop it leave her alone you'll have us to deal with you you know if they had if they had rallied and believed her right away how the story could have been different and, and not that they needed to protect her because they're men and she's a woman but more more in the category of if they had believed her and been on her side from the beginning how could things have been different and that's for me one of the one of the things that pierces me most deeply what can i do to more believe to more support people around me who need my support and need my belief what can I do to contribute to a culture that is opposed to, that makes things like Tony less likely? I, I, I'll say again as we wrap up, it's – this play is so timely. It's yes. like in 2000, Rebecca Gilman knew what was going to happen in 2018, which frankly might be a very ignorant <laughs> or, thing to say. Yeah, uh, or uh, it's honestly, been happening forever. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was getting at. It's, uh, that was, that was yeah. a very male thing to say. Oh, we woke up in 2018 yeah. to how you, how poorly men treat women. Women are like, we've yep. known that since the year 2000 and before that. Read the play. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Absolutely. It could it could definitely be done today and still be still be relevant. Still be still be the. Oh, the you can I mean, I can just imagine the conversations that could surround a production mm. of this play. If you can find a way to produce this for your community and then lead or have somebody with some expertise in psychology and gender studies and politics lead some discussions about the themes of the play, I think that communities can get a lot out of the play. There's some of it that they'll have to overcome, especially more conservative um, and um, more more cautious communities about content that's in the show. Yeah. There is some content that maybe won't strike as well in those communities. But for that, the play, I think, has a lot to offer back to communities that do it, especially in this time. Yes, absolutely. The language in which it is couched makes it kind of difficult to do in in community settings. However, you can do a you can do a stage reading of this play. You can do a conversation around this play, like a play reading club or something like that, and still have these conversations because the conversation is an important one to still have. And yes, absolutely, if you do it, this would be a perfect play. Especially, especially this is this is the 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 tr- the tragedy of it all. Especially in a community space with people who know each other and can trust each other enough to have the complicated conversation. That that is where this play could really do some good. So. I That's our two it. cents. Uh, yep. If you have more two cents and you have more life experience that is in line with the experience of the play and you can offer something back to us that we that we are lacking uh, based on our cultural identities, please offer that back to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we would maybe be interested in revisiting this conversation at a later time with uh, some, maybe some other guests. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, this podcast is in its early stage 
stages and we're really excited about the realm of possibilities of what could be to come, especially about conversations like the conversation that this play produces. So uh, I hope you'll engage with us on social media, on uh, wherever you find the podcast, leave us comments, send us messages, post about us online, um, and, and continue this conversation, which is an important one, is happening all around us and that we all need to be a part of and that people like me need to realize um, what I contribute to. Uh, in this culture. And I, I hope that as I live my life, I can contribute to the better parts of the culture and not the worst. But plays like this are important for helping me to do that. And it, you know, it, it's a privilege to get to read it and experience. Yes, indeed. Yes, please. We will look forward to hearing from all of you as this comes out and we have continue this conversation. So we'll see you online. And until next week, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script. See you next time. Bye. I am recording. Hello, world. This will just be for Jackson because you're the only one that will hear it. (laughs) How sad. I am a small world. Um. (laughs) Um...